On the 2nd of January, 1315, a grand yet somber occasion took place at a Dominican priory just outside of Kings Langley in Hertfordshire. Overseeing proceedings was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Walter Reynolds, the most senior cleric in all of England. Other notable attendees included earls, bishops, friars, the chancellor, and most notably of all, King Edward II of England. He had spent, personally, 300 pounds, the equivalent of about a quarter of a million dollars in today's terms, for the golden ropes which were wrapped around the corpse of the man the assembled masses had come to bury, Piers Gaveston. But the extravagance of the occasion belies the reality of Gaveston standing at the time, and his reputation as it has been memorialized ever since. By the time of his burial, Gaveston had been dead for two years. He initially denied a Christian burial, as he'd been excommunicated by the church at the time of his death. 500 years later, a monument was erected northwest of Hertfordshire in Warwickshire, marking the exact location of Gaveston's demise. Its inscription reads in part, In the hollow of this rock was beheaded by barons lawless as himself, Piers Gaveston, Earl of Cornwall, the minion of a hateful king, in life and death, a memorable instance of misrule. But who was Piers Gaveston? In this episode, I explore his remarkable rise from obscurity, his fall from grace, his resurgence, his ultimate demise, and his enduring, yet still controversial, legacy. It's believed Gaveston was born in 1284. His father, Arnaud de Gaveston, was a knight who had operated for many years in the Pyrenees. His mother, Claremont de Marsum, through an inheritance jointly owned land with her brother in Gascon. Her marriage to Gaveston meant the family who were now living in Gascon were subjects of the Duke of Aquitaine, a title held at that time by King Edward I of England. Edward, often referred to as Longshanks and later as the Hammer of the Scots, was a ferocious warrior. He was a competent administrator, and respected, if not loved, by his subjects, but he was certainly a man of war. Arnaud de Gaveston seemed to share his love of battle, and quickly became one of his most trusted knights. To further cement the relationship, upon the death of his wife, Gaveston came into conflict with her relatives, who tried to reclaim the Gascon estates. Unable to rely upon the income of those estates, Gaveston became dependent on the money he received working for the king. Like his father, Piers Gaveston began working for Edward also. He inherited his father's combat skills and knew how to conduct himself around court. He was like a poster boy for the young noble in an age of chivalry. And in that respect, he was much different from the king's own son, also called Edward. Physically, young Edward looked the part. He was said to be handsome, well-built, athletic, and he was a fine horseman. But peculiarly, he was more interested in thatching 
than in jousting. He liked greyhounds more than swordsmanship, and he spent much of his time involved with music, the arts, or making practical jokes. He also got along very well with low-born commoners and craftsmen, the kind of people the nobility typically steered clear of. He didn't engage well with the young sons of the other nobles, and this was a major flaw for a prospective monarch. Seemingly concerned about his son's unusual fancies, Edward I introduced the young Edward to the machismo Piers Gaveston, hoping the habits of Gaveston would rub off on his young son. Such was the king's faith in Gaveston by this time. He also put him in charge of the estates of Roger Mortimer, the young son of one of Edward's recently deceased knights, who had yet to reach the age of maturity. Based on later events, it's reasonable to assume Mortimer wasn't entirely happy with this setup. After all, while not a commoner, Gaveston was at the tail end of the nobility and a pretty obscure figure at that time. But Gaveston's involvement with Mortimer was short-lived, as the former quickly fell out of favour with the king. The problem stemmed from a falling out between Prince Edward and Walter Langton, the treasurer of London, and it was all about money. The prince wanted more cash to support his decadent lifestyle, something he shared in common with Gaveston. The treasurer refused his demands, and the matter eventually attracted the attention of the king. For him, money has always been a touchy subject. His crusade, as well as his many wars in Scotland, in Wales, and in mainland Europe, had been hugely expensive. He'd imposed exorbitant taxes on the nation, and even expelled the Jewish population so as to assume the interest due on loans they had written. All of these financial measures had caused discontent among the nobles, although due to his ferocity, the barons never dared start a revolt. Unsurprisingly, the king sided with the treasurer in his dispute with young Edward. In fact, he was so outraged at his son's profligate spending that he kicked him out of court and banished his new best pal Gaveston to France. While displeased with his own fall from grace, Prince Edward was said to be crestfallen to hear of Gaveston's exile. And this is when people began to speculate about the nature of their relationship. A chronicler of the time wrote, of Edward's love for Piers, it was reported that, upon looking on him, the son of the king immediately felt such love for him that he entered into a covenant of constancy and bound himself to him before all other mortals with a bond of indissoluble love, firmly drawn up and fastened with a knot. Presumably based on his and his family's previous loyal service, the king finally relented and Gaveston was allowed to return to England. And he was in fact knighted in 1306, just a few months before the same honour was bestowed upon his erstwhile ward, Mortimer. But while he was welcomed back into the fold, Gaveston was no longer allowed to be a part of Prince Edward's household, which had been reduced both in number and in budget as a punishment for his waywardness. Instead, Gaveston was sent to fight in Scotland. But while there, he and 21 other knights absconded and decided to participate in a jousting tournament. The volatile king was incandescent on hearing this, and demanded their arrest before his wife, Queen Margaret. 
somehow convinced the ailing monarch to pardon them. But the respite was short-lived, and this time Gaveston was in trouble again, not because of his own actions, but because of Prince Edward's. Just days after the pardoning, the prince paid a visit to the king, and proposed that the county of Ponthieu in France, the territory young Edward ruled as a vassal state, should be given to Piers Gaveston as a gift. The king, now almost 70 years of age, went ballistic, and as reported by Walter Giesborough to have said, You base-born son, do you want to give away lands now, you who've never gained any? As the Lord lives, if there were not fear of breaking up the kingdom, you should never enjoy your inheritance. The same source then claims the king assaulted his son, even ripping out his hair in a fit of pique. This dramatic reaction from the king has led some to suggest that in truth, rather than merely offering Gaveston Pontieu, Edward had perhaps lobbied for his father to give him the much larger and more valuable Dukedom of Cornwall, a tract of land that was seemingly being held in reserve for one of the prince's young half-brothers. Regardless of the cause though, the anger of the king was clear. While Edward I had shown a certain level of respect, if not fondness for Gaveston, wittingly or otherwise, he was clearly a bad influence on his son. With his own mortality becoming more of a concern, Edward wanted to ensure his line of succession and the best way to do this was to banish Gaveston once again. Both the Prince and Gaveston were forced to swear an oath agreeing to go their separate ways. For his part, Gaveston was provided with a pension, but whether out of guilt or as a small act of defiance, Prince Edward accompanied him to the coast and lavished him with gifts before his departure. Just a few months later, King Edward I died while on campaign in Scotland. His son was proclaimed king, and one of his first acts was to recall Gaveston from exile. The oath the duo had sworn to stay apart could be undone only by the king, and as such, Edward, having inherited the crown, was now entitled to make that move without violating the agreement. But not everyone viewed it that way. And one of the new monarch's biggest critics was Guy de Bouchon, Earl of Warwick. He was only about a decade older than Edward, but he distinguished himself during military campaigns under Edward I. He was one of the old monarch's most trusted advisors, and reportedly, as the old king lay in his deathbed, he asked Beauchamp, along with Aymer de Valence and Henry de Lacy, to keep an eye on his son and to ensure that Gaveston never returned from exile. Given that these men and others held high positions in Edward's court, it's reasonable to think they may have feared that the return of Gaveston may diminish their own standing under the new regime. Nonetheless, De Valence and De Lacy initially fell in line with Edward Jr. and forged friendly ties with the new monarch. De Beauchamp, though, remained suspicious of Gaveston, and his fears about his influence on the new king were realised when Edward bestowed the title of Earl of Cornwall upon his old friend. The title was vacant at the time, but had typically only been assigned to a member of the royal family. Many assumed it would pass to Edward's brother. No one expected it to land in the lap of Gaveston, 
based upon his lowly status alone. The fact he'd been exiled made the appointment even more outrageous. Gaveston's now lofty standing was elevated once again when Edward broke a marriage between him and Margaret de Clare, the sister of the Earl of Gloucester. Her family's assets and titles meant that Gaveston was suddenly in the highest echelon of society for reasons other than the title Edward had bestowed upon him. Despite this, many within the nobility still thought it better to tolerate Gaveston and remain on good terms with the king. But this group of enablers shrunk further when a winter tournament held in Gaveston's honour saw the king's favourite humiliate many of his rivals in mock battles amid allegations he cheated to ensure his victory. For any waverers, the final tipping point with regard to Gaveston came when Edward II went to France where he was to marry Princess Isabella. Of all people, he left the much disliked Nouveau Riche Gaveston to serve as its regent. There's no evidence that Gaveston abused this temporary leadership role. Nevertheless, in the eyes of many, his stock was sinking. For one thing, Edward had recently ordered the arrest of Walter Langton, the treasurer who had lobbied against the then prince's spending on Gaveston. Meanwhile, the king's marriage was to further complicate matters for the Frenchman. In marrying Isabella, Edward, who liked to spend freely, hoped to gain a significant dowry from the King of France. But things didn't go to plan, as Philip IV wasn't hugely impressed with him. Nonetheless, a royal wedding was followed by eight days of celebrations before Edward and his new bride Isabella and her entourage made their way back across the Channel to Dover. There was no suggestion, even at the time, that the marriage was the result of a love affair. It was a political alliance, and one that had been first floated when Isabella was just two years old. Nevertheless, as a powerful political figure in her own right, Isabella would have expected to have been treated with all the reverence that any queen should receive. As the royal couple's boat docked in Dover, with a group assembled on the quayside, she likely expected to be at the centre of attention, as all the typical pomp and ceremony unfolded. Her husband, though, had other plans. Leaving her on the boat alongside his luggage, he ran ashore and immediately embraced Gaveston. The initial embrace was followed with a showering of kisses. All of this playing out to the embarrassment of his courtiers and the bemused frustration of Isabella and her cohorts. Whether anyone took Edward to one side and told him to dial it down a bit is unknown. But if they did, he obviously didn't listen, as this bizarre behaviour continued at Isabella's coronation. As with most things under Edward II, the task of organising the extravagant coronation fell to Gaveston. It was held in the Westminster Palace, which had been expensively renovated ahead of time specifically for this event. As typical with any coronation, the royal couple made their way down the aisle while a courtier carried the crown behind them. But even this role fell to Gaveston, and he decided to cause a stir by wearing purple robes of the sort normally reserved exclusively for royalty. Commentators said he looked like the Roman god Mars, or one of his imperial impersonators such as Diocletian. No one was looking at the royal bride and soon-to-be queen. Everyone was fixated on Gaveston. 
The third stage of Isabella's public humiliation occurred during the reception banquet. As you'd expect, she sat beside the king, but on his other side sat the ornately dressed Gaveston. And according to witnesses, Edward barely glanced at her the entire evening as he focused all his attention on Gaveston, with the two trading jokes while drinking copious amounts of wine from a specially crafted fountain. It's easy to imagine the kind of displeasure felt by the nobles watching this whole fiasco unfold. After all, Edward had gone to France hoping to secure a substantial dowry and a powerful alliance. He'd returned with what amounted to some trinkets and he was also jeopardizing that fledgling alliance. But prominent figures in England had foreseen these problems and had already taken preemptive measures to address them. On the 31st of January, just days after the King's Boulogne wedding, a group including the Bishop of Durham and the Earl of Hertford, whom Gaveston had humiliated in the combat festival months earlier, had produced a document known as the Boulogne Agreement. It set out the expectations that English nobles were responsible for protecting the honour of the king, but also the institution of the crown. The language was perhaps deliberately vague, and Edward II agreed to it, not realising that it would soon be used as the basis for demanding Gaveston's exile, as his behaviour and the king's treatment of him was, the signatories argued, endangering the future of the crown. In April, this document evolved into Parliamentary Declaration of 1408, which stated that citizens were subjects of the crown and not the person of the king. If the king damaged the standing of the crown or abused the people, then the citizens, or in reality the nobles, could remove him in order to protect the crown. Unsurprisingly, Edward rejected the idea that to comply with this, he must exile Gaveston. But he was in a weak position. His grandfather had faced multiple revolts by barons. His great-grandfather had been confronted by a family-led rebellion. His great-great-grandfather, King John, was forced to sign the Magna Carta Bill of Rights after facing insurrection of his own. In fact, it was the norm for monarchs to have their wings clipped by barons or to face the consequences. Today, things had always played out the same way, with the barons getting what they wanted and the monarch losing a degree of power. With the King of France displeased at his daughter's treatment, also siding with the barons, Edward was forced to make concessions and reluctantly agreed to exile his closest friend. But the exile turned into another farce. Gaveston made the short trip across the Irish Sea and was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. He was stripped of his possessions in Cornwall, but Edward offset even this by handing him land and income from Gascon. In Ireland though, Gaveston proved to be an astute warrior and competent administrator. He was able to quell long-running Irish resistance, and this may have won him some favour back in England. More importantly though, Edward had set about bribing nobles with cash and titles, and the following year, Edward and the nobles led by Lincoln agreed on a document called the Statute of Stamford, which basically reset the relationship between the King and the Parliament. 
The king's standing was, on paper, further diminished, but he won a major concession. Gaveston could return. Rather than thanking his lucky stars, or adopting the conciliatory tone Edward had used to enable his return, Gaveston saw his comeback as a triumph. He wasn't interested in making nice with the people who had reluctantly offered him another opportunity. He simply wanted revenge. He began publicly mocking the nobles, including Lincoln, a key figure in ending his exile, who he called Burstbelly. Pembroke he likened to a Jew, something that was unfortunately viewed as negative at the time. This abuse and name-calling led to nobles boycotting Parliament due to the crass and confrontational, bullying tone set by Gaveston. But worse still, while Edward had always lavished gifts on the Frenchmen, he now began to also treat his friends and allies too. And all of this, while Queen Isabella had seen her income paid only sporadically, and her jewels hidden away by the king for safekeeping. Beyond Gaveston, the nobles who'd fought bravely alongside Edward's father to hammer the Scots, were angry that the new king had left the folks north of the border to roam freely. Robert the Bruce was running the show, and no resistance was forthcoming from England. In a desperate attempt to curry favour with the domestic power brokers, Edward and Gaveston suddenly launched an attack in Scotland. But it failed, in large part due to the refusal of most of the barons to participate. And to make matters worse, territory held by the retreating Gaveston within England was raided by the Scots. Edward could no longer secure his own borders, much less regain control of Scotland. He had no choice but to once again acquiesce to the Baron's demands and expel Gaveston in return for their support. Ireland was off the table this time. So too, in practical terms, was France, as King Philip IV arguably disliked Gaveston more than even the British nobles. Where he went for the next two months remains a mystery, but two months is all it was before Gaveston boldly returned to Britain in January 1312. The delighted Edward gave him the prodigal son treatment, killing the proverbial fatted calf, saying his sins were forgiven and his titles restored. But there was no chance of a rapprochement this time. Gaveston had run out of chances, and Edward had broken his word time and time again. Inevitably, England descended into a civil war. Outnumbered, Edward left his heavily pregnant queen and Gaveston, his wife and newborn child, and both fled to Scarborough, where a siege took hold. Eventually, the Frenchman decided to surrender under terms agreed by Pembroke, one of the barons he'd famously lampooned. He was taken down to Oxfordshire and given assurances as to his safety. But there were divisions even among the barons, and upon hearing Gaveston was virtually unguarded in nearby Oxfordshire, Beauchamp, the Earl of Warwick, and Gaveston's longtime critic, launched a raid and captured him, along with the king's own cousin Thomas Lancaster and a number of other barons. Warwick declared that Gaveston 
had violated the terms of prior agreements, and the only punishment for this was death. He was dragged out by a roadside, run through by two swordsmen, beheaded, and his body unceremoniously dumped in the foliage and left to the elements. He'd been excommunicated by the church for violating the terms of his exile, which meant he could not have a Christian burial. Nonetheless, in another bizarre twist in his story, some sympathetic shoemakers whisked away his body and entrusted his remains to some Dominican friars. That's where his body remained until Edward eventually gained a posthumous pardon from the church. At that point, he received the extravagant funeral that in Edward's eyes seemed to befit his character. Gaveston's legacy has not been helped by that of Edward. He eventually became the first king post the Norman invasion to be executed. The task apparently falling to Mortimer, the man who years before had been Gaveston's ward. In fact, a legend arose that the king was killed by having a hot poker shoved into his backside. The supposed nature of his execution ties into another long-held rumour that Edward was involved sexually with men, including Piers Gaveston. What we do know from the Chronicles is people at the time certainly seemed to think Edward was enamoured with Gaveston. But was it a sexual relationship? And were Edward's apparent feelings for Gaveston reciprocated? Or was Gaveston simply a man he admired and looked up to? Someone who was the kind of figure his father wanted him to be, who he could latch onto and try and live vicariously through? We don't know. What we do know is that after Gaveston died, Edward II latched onto another controversial figure, Hugh Dispenser. A man who spent time as a pirate, who was a noble, but who was despised and corrupt. Contemporary sources refer to dispenser using the disparaging term sodomite to signify the widely held belief at the time that he and the king were involved in what was perceived to be an immoral relationship. Moreover, a bishop even referred to dispenser as the husband of the king. Now, it's entirely possible that Edward and Gaveston, and later Edward and Hugh Dispenser, did have a sexual relationship of some kind. But it's also worth remembering the mindset of people in that era. A couple of hundred years earlier, William Rufus, the successor to William the Conqueror as King of England, was, according to rumour and innuendo of the time, a homosexual. But significantly, if he was. It doesn't seem as if that was that big of a deal for anyone at the time. It was something alluded to, but it wasn't something that caused great scorn and criticism. However, by the time of Edward II, the situation had changed. And we know this because of the publication of a book called Deflator in the last years of Edward I's reign, a kind of common law book of law, not saying these punishments have to be set, but giving recommendations of what's the norm based on certain types of criminal activity, one of them being homosexuality. And this book adopted an idea 
that comes from Germany, pre-Christian Germany specifically, which proposed that anyone engaged in homosexual activity should be buried alive. Now there's no documented evidence to suggest that in Edward I's time or thereafter, anyone in England actually suffered that specific fate for their so-called crime. But the fact that it was written into that common law book where previously homosexuality hadn't seemed to be a big issue tells you that at that point in time, for whatever reason, people perceived homosexuality negatively. We also know that Edward II was widely despised as an inefficient, corrupt, decadent ruler. So it's not a huge stretch to think that if you were trying to destroy the reputation of an individual, you might use terms and insults which within that society are perceived to be bad. And at that point in time, people widely viewed homosexuality negatively. So was Edward actually involved sexually with Gaveston or anyone else? Or was this something conjured up by the homophobic prejudice of the era to further add to his negative reputation? What we do know is that both Edward and Gaveston had children with their wives. Edward also had children with various mistresses. This would seem to suggest that he had at least some interest in women sexually. Perhaps he was bisexual, but we don't know. And frankly, most of us don't care. The only reason I bring this up is because for 680 of the last 700 years, one of the things that has caused controversy around Edward and Gaveston is this alleged same-sex relationship, which may have been real, or may have been something conjured up by prejudiced people of the time to further damage, in their minds, the reputation of both men. <laughs>